1 Corinthians 15 is our passage that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. It really has to do with death. It has to do with resurrection. It has as its topic something that we uh, avoid, of course. We make jokes about it to kind of soften the blow in our own heart. I remember many years ago listening to Jerry Seinfeld do a monologue where he said, quote, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Which means death has to be down there below public speaking. So if you think about that, he says, does that sound right? It means if to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? I love that. Will Schreiner said this, I want to die in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming and yelling like the rest of the passengers in his car. <laughs> Famous last words, ha, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. That's Union General John B. Sedgwick at the Battle of Spotsylvania, 1864. Famous last words, don't unplug it, it'll just take a moment to fix it. Famous last words, what happens if you touch these two wires to give me a match, I think my gas tank is empty. Famous last words, just watch me dive off of that bridge. How about this one, guys? What? Your mother's going to stay another month? Famous last words. <laughs> there was a Glasgow undertaker named Jamie Stewart who called himself the undertaker for the terminally inconvenienced. <laughs> Come on, guys. Terminally inconvenienced. That's funny. It doesn't matter who you are, all right? He signed all of his correspondence, eventually yours. That's great, man. Eventually yours. The Oriental, the Oriental say that uh, the black camel of death kneels at the door and each mortal must mount and return nevermore. Dustin Hoffman revealed his plans for his epitaph on his tombstone. He says it'll simply read, I knew this was going to happen. More serious note, 39 people died while we read those words. Every hour, 5,417 people go to meet their maker. Every hour. By the time we finish this sermon, over 5,000 people will have gone on to eternity. And so, as we looked at the earlier ones, it might seem that some speed up their time here, uh, their end with bad decisions. <laughs> we know that uh, that's simply not true because the psalmist tells us in Psalm 139.16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and your book, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. All the days you've ordained for me, David said, when you were still unformed in your mother's womb before one had ever come to pass. And as we've certainly observed before, death has controlled humanity until one defining moment in the entire history of man and in all of the created cosmos, and that was Jesus raised from the dead. When Jesus was raised, that changed everything. Jesus completed his redeeming work on the cross according to the Father's will. In fact, John 6.40 says that. It says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's the will of the Father that all who believe conquer death. That's an amazing temperament of our Father, isn't it? Long-suffering, the scripture says, and faithful. And it's the will of the Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. It's the will of the Father that all who believe conquer death. That's his will. And it is all because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so that fact 
then of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul says to Timothy, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who, what? Abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He has brought light, life and immortality and abolished death through the gospel. He abolished death. That's the most important news ever, isn't it? And so Paul takes his time in chapter 15 and he makes sure that the church has the right doctrine and they have the right theology. And so they're thoroughly grounded in their hope. And now last time we were together, we were making our way through this fifth section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've kind of broken them down by topic as Paul addresses perhaps the last days or he addresses the forgiveness of sin and meaning in life or he uh, and numerous other things that he's addressed and we've worked our way through. And basically what he's done is he's focused on the fundamental nature of the bodily resurrection of Christ because it's a big deal. It's the most important news ever. And so they are thoroughly grounded and he wants to make sure that they, they know what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and what the resurrection will look like. And so he takes his time with this. And Paul has put together really a fantastic list of principles, and we've looked through them, and it really helped the church to see the central nature of the resurrection. Starting in verse 34, now, and this is our most recent study, he has answered the scoffers, and he's answered the mockers, and he's given the mechanics, and he's given the form of the believer's bodily resurrection. And a few verses ago, he pointed out that, that seeds and plants, and the different types of flesh of animals, fish and birds, and different types of heavenly bodies, all illustrate the mechanics and form of the resurrection. So they're familiar with how this resurrection is going to occur and what perhaps it's going to look like when we get to do it. And then last week we saw he appealed to the scriptures. This is not something new, Paul says, that I just thought of. Uh, That's what he's essentially saying. He says, scripture has always indicated this order. Look at verse 45 of your copy of God's word. So also it is written. So that's typical Paul, isn't it? He goes through, he makes some great arguments And then he comes back and he just says, listen, this is not new to me and it's not new to you. Scripture has always indicated this. So also it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And Paul appeals to Scripture to really clinch his argument. We saw that Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So for clarity, Paul inserts first before man and Adam after it. He just makes sure that that the reader understands this has always been here and this is who we're talking about. Paul's talking about Adam and he just says, listen, understand this first Adam, the Lord made him. And from the beginning, he was a living being. It was true of Adam, all of his descendants, everybody who came from Adam had that characteristic of being a living being, the flesh that matches the earth. And so we have examined many times the first Adam also passed down his nature to those who came after. Certainly after the fall, he passed down the sin principle introduced into the human stream by Adam. And that got passed down. But that's not Paul's emphasis here. It's just very simple. He says, listen, from the very beginning, God created Adam, a living being, matched to the physical principles of the earth. That was the very start of everything. God created Adam as a physical body made for earth. And then he says, look at verse 45, so also it's written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so obviously here he's speaking about Jesus along with Adam. He's done it before. And it appears that his point is that Adam was the predecessor of the race. And his characteristics are stamped on the race. And everyone who's come from Adam have the same physical characteristics. In the same way, Christ is the last Adam. And the progenitor of the race of spiritual people. 
That's the idea. That's the, because it goes along with the context of, you know, planting the seed and having a plant or the different heavenly bodies, all that kind of stuff. Just say, listen, it's always been this way. Adam was the physical and all his descendants look just like him. Jesus is the prototype and the progenitor of the spiritual, what the resurrected body is going to look like. And all his characteristics are stamped on that race of spiritual people. Now mark this. There is a wonderful, catch this, irrevocability about Jesus being the last Adam. I want to draw your attention to that. In other words, there's never going to be another head of the human race. There was one Adam, and then there was the second Adam, and he's the last Adam. He's the last progenitor of the human race. There's never going to be another head. By virtue, and we've seen this before, of his permanence as the resurrected Messiah. Remember we saw that? Several times Paul says he's in that permanent place as a resurrected Messiah. Jesus as the last Adam stamps his characteristics on everyone who's his. You get that? That's Paul's exact emphasis. Just like you bear the characteristics of the first Adam, in your resurrected body, you'll bear the characteristics of the last Adam. And that's a marvelous thing to think about. And that's not a new, that's not a new idea, is it? For we will be like him, for we will what? See him just like he is. We're going to see that passage in just a minute. But so that's not new. Right? Here Paul just makes it very clear as he's describing the mechanics and form of the resurrection. He's just saying, listen, you are going to permanently bear the characteristics of your progenitor, Jesus, forever. That's part of the form and that's part of the mechanics of the resurrection. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 15 is a really great passage that kind of fills in the gaps here because Paul doesn't go back in and say this. But it's just this. The first Adam, just as a footnote, catch this. The first Adam implies the last Adam, okay? Because there's a problem, isn't there? The first Adam, here's another one. The first Adam is a real person, and the last Adam is a real person. And that really flies right into the face of Christians who hold on to an evolutionary theory, doesn't it? Adam's not some figure back there that's just spiritual. Adam was a real person. And, and the second, and then the last Adam is a real person. And they have to interact with each other. So uh, that's one of the first things I bring up to people who come to me. I just had this interaction not that long ago with somebody who sits in a church where they teach evolution. I just said, okay, well, I mean, there's a whole lot of problems we can deal with here, but how about this? How about the first and last Adam? What are you doing with that? That's not a, if the first Adam is just a spiritual figure that's an illustration that makes it a problem for Jesus to be an actual real person who was physically resurrected from the dead, doesn't it? So we have a problem with first and last Adam above, I mean, above everything else that is problematic in that whole theory. And then the first Adam's work with one sin, leading the entire human race into sin, requires then the last Adam's work, doesn't it? And just to clarify that, Romans 5.15 says this, Paul Paul uh, had much to say about this in Romans 5, but he says this, and we won't go through the whole thing, but just this, verse 15, the free gift, that's from Jesus, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, now who's he talking about there? Adam, okay? Many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus, abound to the many. So, catch this, one sin, Adam's work, verse 15 stresses it's one man, verse 16 stresses it's one sin. So you put that all together, you get it. One sin, the whole entire human race into sin, okay? Brought about judgment, brought about condemnation on everyone. Everyone was stamped in that image. Everyone received that sin nature. 
and then many sins in relation to Jesus' work. So Adam, one sin, the whole human race goes into sin, and then this free gift takes into account all those offenses. Adam had one sin, Jesus had to take into account all the offenses. The judgment on the whole human race proceeded from one sin. Justification through the free gift of grace proceeded from many transgressions. So Adam's one sin ruined everybody. And everyone sinned in Adam. And we're told that to be the case, okay? Whether you sin just like Adam or not, you've sinned in Adam. You're connected to him by principle. And that's a lot more than just one sin that has to be taken into account, isn't it? All of your sin, all of everyone else who's ever been stamped in Adam's image sin, all from Adam's sin. Jesus' one act of justification forgives all those transgressions from everybody. So Adam's work requires the last Adam's work, and how much greater then is the last Adam's work than the first Adam's work? It's exponentially greater. The evil that Jesus has saved us from with his work is far greater than the evil that Adam initiated with his work, you see? Jesus' work doesn't just remove the curse and all those accumulated offenses. He justifies us from an innumerable load of sin, you see? Places us not just back to Adam, but permanently secure in righteousness. And so when Paul says then that, so it's also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's talking about this whole work that's going on. This life-giving spirit was needed because of what happened with the first Adam, see? Because we were connected to death, permanently connected without any intervention, see? And so Jesus comes and becomes the last Adam, the permanent one. There'll never be another progenitor of the human race. And so Paul says the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So in his office, then, Christ's characteristic is that he is a life-giving spirit. Adam, Adam became a living soul. He was a physical embodiment of what it means to live on earth. Jesus became a life-giving spirit. So in his office, Christ's characteristic is that he's a life-giving spirit, that his resurrection is not just the pattern for the mechanics and form that Paul wants the church to see, but just obviously, he's the source too, see? He's not just the pattern. He's not just, okay, you see Jesus stamped here, there's the pattern that we're going to take after. He's also the source of what's going to happen to you and I, see? The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And in the course of the explanation, Paul just reminds the church that even with Jesus, there was a change. Because he says in verse 46, look there in your copy of God's word, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. And I think the, the way to see the passage is just to understand that when Jesus was born, he was in every sense human. And in Luke 2, that seems to indicate that Jesus grew like any other kid grew. You know, Luke 2.40 says this, the child continued talking about Jesus to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. In verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So he grew in his knowledge, he grew physically, and he grew in favor with God and man. So he had to grow, and he had to understand, and he had to come to grips with all the things that were going on in the world, and, have, and who he was, and all of that stuff, and who he was as a son, and who he's going to be as a leader, and all that kind of thing, see. And so Jesus just kind of grew up as a human. And they seem to indicate that Jesus grew like any other kid grew, and so it would follow that the process continued as he became a man. He understood as a man would understand. And, and the point Paul's making is that Scripture also seems to indicate that not only is Jesus the source, but he's also the pattern. You can see this. He started physical, and then he went into the grave, and he was raised with a glorified body. 
His body wasn't the same as his pre-resurrection body. And Paul makes that point here twice in verses 45 and 46. He became, it says, a life-giving spirit. And then he says, and the spiritual isn't first, even with Jesus. Jesus knew there was going to be a transformation. He knew the limitations of the body of flesh that he started with. And there was going to be a change. And when he went into the grave, there was this burial of that old body. And what came out of the grave in some ways is a very unique body. It was different enough that we see that maybe that's the reason why no one fully recognized him when they first would see him. Maybe he was hiding their eyes, you know, keeping their eyes from seeing him. But I think there was enough change that he didn't, he didn't fully recognize him unless he opened their eyes to see them. And it wasn't that he was so different because when his disciples recognized him, I mean, they saw him and they identified him easily. They heard his voice. They, they saw his scars and all of that. And yet he was different as well. And that transformation after his resurrection is that wonderful principle that the scriptures record Adam and Jesus. And it's always recorded this marvelous illustration of the process of the resurrection between the first Adam and the second Adam. Adam is the first in physical form. He passed down all of that form to those who followed him. Jesus also started in physical form and then was resurrected in a glorified body. And he is the image that we'll bear. Now look at the next section, three verses. It's going to take us to the end of this section, if you would. Look at verse 47 through 49. We'll read it together. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. Verse 48, as is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And I, Paul just kind of wraps up his argument. You can kind of see it. We've laid all the groundwork. It's pretty easy to stand on that and say, okay, we understand that. Now let's break it down a little bit. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. The first man is, of course, Adam. Paul is looking at origins here, okay? So he obviously wants to keep the doctrine correct. Jesus' origin is not the earth, okay? And that's important because some cults actually say Jesus was a created being, okay? So here you've got that flying in the face of that false doctrine, okay? The first man is from the earth, earthy. First man, of course, is Adam. Paul's looking at origins. He's keeping the doctrine correct. Adam is earthy. Koikos, literally, the adjective means made of earth. He's made of earth, Adam is. And that's, and that's what scripture tells us. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We just read that, okay? So it doesn't appear that this is a problem. This is common knowledge. Paul just uh, treats it because it's part of the process as he deals with these topics. The second man is Christ. And though he appeared on earth, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again on earth, he's not to be thought of as originating from the earth, as did Adam. And that's important. He's from heaven. He has eternally existed. And it doesn't imply that Jesus was made of heaven or made in heaven. It doesn't say any of those words to describe Jesus like it described Adam. It just says, it just says only the second man is from heaven. With Adam, you have something tied to the earth. But in Christ, you have something tied to heaven. So our transformation principle 11, as we've gone through this, here's another one. I'll leave it on there for a minute so you can write it down. It really is tied to the other parts, obviously. We break this down, don't we? We just try to parse this out so it breaks up and has some handholds. But you can see how these are connected. All right, this is, but this is Paul's mind as he goes through it. He's given a great principle here. Adam has given us an earthly existence with a body made from dust, and Christ is giving us a heavenly existence with a body made 
both a body with heavenly origins and heavenly abilities. Okay, that's Paul's, as he continues to communicate this to us, that's when he makes, wants to make sure. Listen, Christ is not tied to the earth. He wasn't made from earth. He was sent from heaven. The Holy Spirit is the one who uh, impregnated um, Mary. And so Jesus' connection is to heaven. And that's Paul's point because he really confirms this thought in verse 48. He says this. Look there if you're your copy of God's word. It says, verse 48, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, as is the heavenly, so are also are those who are heavenly. So if we are in Adam, we're going to be earthly. If we're in Christ, we're going to be what? We're going to have a heavenly body. That's the point. When we're in Adam, we receive from Adam his body. If we're in Christ, we're going to receive from Jesus the likeness of his body. So again, he's just expanding the understanding of what the resurrection is going to look like. What are the mechanics? What are the form? Right? He starts out very simply. Listen, the seed doesn't even indicate what it's going to look like. And you plant it, and it comes up. He says that's a great illustration of the resurrection. The glory of the seed is marvelous because of the potential. But the glory of what comes up is so different than what the seed looked like. It's so very important. And then he just gets more and more complex, and he refines it even more. So there's no confusion about where you're tied. If we're in Adam, we're going to be earthy. If we're in Christ, we're going to be in a heavenly body. Now, when we're in Adam, we receive from Adam his body. If we're in Christ, we're going to receive from Jesus the likeness of his body. That's a pretty cool way to say it, I think. Those who are earthy, so are those who are, are, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. That's a great way to say, listen, you're going to get a body like Jesus' body. 1 John 3, 2 says this, we just said it a minute ago, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So we don't know exactly how, we, how we're going to look. We get a lot of clues, so he's not saying we have no idea what we're going to look like, okay? He doesn't say that. He just says, it's not exact, we're not exactly, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, this is what we know, John says, we will be like him. So John knew that. Because we will see him just as he is. We don't see the heavenly body yet, do we? And that's no secret. As you get older, we're not, we're not seeing the heavenly body, okay? But when we see him, for those in this room who are born again, that will be at the rapture of the church, you will be like him, see? You will have that heavenly body. For John and Paul really assure us that there is no doubt. I love this. Is there any doubt in any of their comments it's not like, I hope this is how it works out, you know, and I hope I'm not wrong because it'll be really disappointing. I mean, they're completely sold out to the fact that this is the case. John says, listen, we don't know exactly yet what we're going to look like, but we know one thing, that when he appears, we'll be like him. What's Paul say? If you're from earth, you resemble the earthly. But you know what? You are born again, so you are from your, Christ is your progenitor, of your spiritual body, and you're going to be look like him. Listen to this illustration from Philippians, Philippians 3.21. This is just marvelous. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now that happened when you came to faith. Before, your citizenship was here, and your, and your master was Satan, and everyone was in the lap of the evil one. That's very clear from Scripture. But when you came, to, you came to faith, your citizenship is now in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior. So we're waiting for him to come back. And this is a very similar thing that we've looked at already. Just to be clear, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 29, catch this. Who will transform the body of our humble state. That's the body that resembles Adam, the first Adam. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with whom? With the body of his glory. Who are you going to resemble? The spiritual body, the glorified body that Jesus had, you're going to be transformed into a body like that. I think you're still, as we looked at before, you're still going to be recognizable. You're going to have a lot of the same you know, habits that are good, the same gait, I think, the same, you know, just same general look about you, okay? Some of us will have more hair than we have now, you know, maybe, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe not. Conformity with the body of his glory, how? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Is there any limit to the creative power of the Lord? No. Does he say, listen, you know, animals and birds and fish, he can make any flesh he wants. He can make heavenly bodies, and they differ in glory from one another. That's not hard for the Lord. He's not more exhausted when he makes this, a sun in another uh, solar system than he is when he made a grasshopper, okay? He can do either one equally, and neither one taxes his strength. And so he just says, listen, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Jesus was given that right at resurrection. He's going to bring everything into subjection on the earth, isn't he? And turn it all over to the Lord, and he's going to bring your physical body, whether you're in the grave and he brings it out, or whether you're alive when he raptures you, he's going to bring your body into subjection too, and in the image of his own glorious body. That couldn't be any more clear. So the resurrection body of Christ shows us something of what life will be like for believers in the new world that the return of Christ will usher in. He's going to change your lowly body so it will be like his glorious one. And I don't think that explanation can get any more clear than that. So just verse, look at 49, look at verse 49. This is great. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, so, will also be, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And, you know, at first look, this kind of reminds me of verse 44, doesn't it? If there is a physical body, there's a spiritual one. Remember when we read that? It was just kind of a warning, right? Just kind of shot across the bow. Regardless of what you might think, and if you think this is the end, you'll eat, drink, and, and you know, for tomorrow we'll die or whatever. Regardless of what you think, if you're in a physical body now, there's a spiritual body waiting for you. And it wasn't specifying whether or not it was the first resurrection or second resurrection. It wasn't specifying whether or not you're going to be rejoicing in all eternity with Christ or you're going to spend eternity in hell because both groups of people will have a body fit for eternity, both groups. And so that verse 44 didn't really specify either way. It's just if you live in a physical body, be very sure, just as sure as you are that you're walking around now, you'll have a spiritual body. And that's just kind of a shot across the bow. You better deal with the issues at hand. But verse, 40, verse 44, it's sown us a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's a spiritual body. Just be aware of that, Paul says. This is a fact. But here, I think, in verse 49, instead of the planting and the growth that occurs from the seed, which is really verse 44, and the fixed reality of a future spiritual body, whether you like it or not, Really here, I think he's calling to mind your actual experience as an illustration. And this is really directed to the redeemed. That's, that's the focus here. He starts to start with the first half. Just as we have borne, ephoresomen, aorist, active, indicative verb, the image of 
to earthy. The idea is of a continuous, habitual condition, and it has to do with really wearing of clothing or of armor or whatever. You put it on, you continually wear it. The reality from our birth until this very moment, see, and of course here it's the image that corresponds and reproduces the original. So we just tie back to Adam. You've constantly bore from your birth till now the image that is tied to the first Adam. You've borne it all along, just as we have borne the image of the earthly. A continuous, habitual condition of wearing of clothing. Okay, so just look around you. We're all bearing the image of the earthy, aren't we? And we're all in some form or another of corruption and shame and all the things that can, are connected with our life here. We don't live up to the potential that we want to live up to. We don't live up to the level of performance for the Lord that we'd like to. We're just constantly in this, in this uh, dishonor. And all that kind of stuff we looked at before, see? We're all bearing that image. And so I just would say, just as, general, just as a general comment, don't get too attached to this body, okay? Now look at the second half of the verse. We will also bear, for us, men, future active indicative, the image of the heavenly. That's your reality, see? If you're in faith, in, in faith see, if you're going to bear the image of the heavenly, obviously it's targeting the redeemed, isn't it? We're going to bear the image of the heavenly, the ideas of a continuous, habitual condition of wearing clothing. This is the future reality of every believer from our resurrection until forever. So the first part was from your birth until this very moment. You have borne the image of the earthy. But from your resurrection to all of eternity, you will bear the image of the heavenly. And again, I think it corresponds with what Paul has been saying all along here. It is the image that corresponds and reproduces the original. And who's the image? Jesus, right? Isn't that what Philippians said? Yep, he's going to transform our lowly body. Isn't that what John said? I, we don't know for sure what we're going to look like, but we know one thing for sure, we'll be like him because we'll see him like he is, see? From the time of your resurrection until all eternity, forever, you will bear that image. This will be a body you can keep forever. This will be a body you're going to get to hang on to because there's never going to be another progenitor of of the human race, only Jesus. And you'll always bear that image of the glorified body in your body. So transformation principle number 12, you probably copied it down already. Just as throughout this life, we have physically borne the image of Adam, so in the life to come, we'll bear that of our Lord. Just as surely as we have done the one, and this is just absolutely certain in Paul's mind, so surely shall we do the other. There isn't any uncertainty in Paul's statement here. There's no uncertainty in Philippians. There's no uncertainty for John. It's absolutely for sure that's your reality, see. And if you're interested in what Jesus' body was like after the resurrection, well, you're going to get to know because you're going to be like it. Now, let's look at a few of those attributes, and we'll, and we'll just note a few of them quickly if they're interested to, interesting to you. Jesus gives his disciples their final instructions in Acts 1.11, and he says this. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he rises up out of their sight, doesn't he? After he gives the final instructions, he rises, I love this part, he rises up out of their sight, and the disciples just standing there, and they're looking up in the heavens, probably exactly what we would have done. Just kind of standing there like, wow, that was, that was amazing. And then, so the angels are kind of, you, you know, you can kind of get, this is in my, how my mind works, the angels are kind of hanging out. Nobody can see them at this point. They're just kind of watching the disciples, and Jesus gave them some instruction. He told them to go to Jerusalem. They're just kind of standing there looking, you know, they're kind of talking. They're still looking. You know, who knows how much time, maybe an hour or two has passed. And he's just kind of looking up, and they're like, okay, 
we're going to interject ourselves here. And so they come down and they say this, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go to heaven. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff there that is so for certain that's just, it's just lovely to hear to your ear. That he's going to come just as certain as he went up, he's going to come back, okay? And, and that's lovely. But here's, here's how it ties to our, our passage and how we can understand this heavenly body that you're going to bear the image of. In other words, when he comes back, it doesn't matter how much time passes by, okay? I mean, it could be 2,000 years, it could be 3,000 years, but he will be exactly the same as he was when he went up. You will recognize him. He'll be exactly like he looked when, you, when he left. Because guess what? He's not in a physical body anymore, and you won't be either. And it doesn't matter how much time passes. When he comes back, you're going to see him, and he's going to look just the same, and so will you. And that's pretty good news, isn't it? Because, man, just a couple years makes a huge difference for some of you. Okay? You know what I'm saying? And me. So his resurrected body is a body that's never going to change it's never going to age. It's never going to decay. So Revelation 1-7 gives us a little bit of that. Behold, what's it say? He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So that's for sure, too. Every eye is going to see him. And guess what? He hasn't changed one bit. They're all going to recognize him, even those who pierced him more than 2,000 years ago. They're going to see him, and they're going to recognize him completely. So he's not going to have changed that much, right? I mean, he's got a glorified body, but his general appearance is the same, and everybody's going to see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn over him, so it is to be amen. Everybody's going to recognize him. You're going to be like him. So that's what he's going to be like. That's what you're going to be like. John 20, 19 indicates that he didn't need doors to come into a room. Look it up. He has a glorified body. They're all locked in. They're afraid of the Jews. Everything's closed. Windows are closed. Everything's closed, really stuffy in there, and all of a sudden Jesus is standing in their midst. That's pretty cool. You're going to be like him. I'm not making it up, okay? When we see him, you'll be like him. He's going to transform our lowly body into the glorification of his lovely body. That's, that's the idea, see? So what did Jesus do? Well, he didn't need doors to come into a room. John 21, 9 indicates that he ate fish and he ate bread. That's kind of cool, isn't it? You're going to get to eat, and you're not going to turn into a couch potato, okay? It's great. I mean, how many like to eat? I mean, we're getting ready to eat. That's pretty cool. Don't put up your hand for crying out loud. You like to eat? What? Come on. Man, I feel bad. Yeah, I like to eat. I told you last week I eat burgers. Okay, I like to eat. In his resurrection, there was something so different about him that if he didn't open the eyes of his disciples, see, they wouldn't have recognized him, and yet he was the same. That's you. I think if you're going to be like him, there's going to be something remarkably different about him and I, about you, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, what it was, I think. And then also, there, you're very much the same. And then Jesus' resurrected body was so glorious that when Paul was exposed to the unfiltered, unshielded glory of Jesus on the Damascus Road, what happened to him? He was blinded. Scarred his cornea. He, he was blind for a while until somebody had to lay hands on him and heal him. So Jesus has a glorified body, and you're going to have one too. And I don't think it's a stretch to believe that the scriptures, or what the scriptures say, but they tell us that we're going to be like him. 
You know, I'd like you to turn, if you would, and we're going to wrap up with this in just, just a couple minutes, so stick with me. Turn to Matthew 13, 24. This is, worth, this is worth turning to. Let me put that back up there while you're turning to Matthew 13, 24. I think this illustrates it really well. I love the parables. I love getting to this point in Matthew, Matthew 12, Matthew 13, Matthew 14, where you go through the parables and the uh, parallel passages in the other Gospels. Some of my favorite reading throughout the year when we get to this part. But Jesus is teaching a parable. It's, it's an uh, earthly lesson that has a heavenly application. So he wants to make them understand what the kingdom of heaven is like or, or something spiritual is like. So he uses something they know about. And he says this in verse 24. He says, the kingdom of heaven, verse, uh, Matthew 13, 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and, sh- and sowed tares among the weed and went away. And if you were with us last Sunday night, John gave you that illustration of what that looks like. Verse 26, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Verse 27, the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28, and he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Just pull them out? He said, no. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Verse 30, allow both them to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So some serious things are really explained by Jesus here. Just pause right there for a second. Stay right where you are. Relating to this life, relating to the beginning of the next life, relating when Jesus comes back, and it's an agricultural illustration, but it tells, it gives some serious implications of what's going on in the earth. It explains a lot of what goes on in the earth and why we see what we see, and even inside the church. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff we have to deal with. A lot of that's explained here. And then verse 36, he explains the parable. So skip down to verse 36. And then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples, of course, they're pondering and chewing on all this. And, uh, and they've got some questions. And so they come to him and said to him, see where I am? Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Verse 37, and he said, the one who sows good seed is the son of man. Verse 38, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. Verse 39, and these, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is at the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So he's just making really clear in this agricultural explanation, who the representatives are. And then he says in verse 40, So, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Verse 41, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And we saw this with Paul, didn't we? Just a few verses ago, he said, Everything's going to be brought into subjection. All the enemies of Christ put under his feet. Every, this, is, this is the actual physical work that's being done. Okay? He's going to gather out all the kingdom, all the stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, verse 42, and we will throw them into the furnace of fire and that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So they're not being consumed, they're just being burned. They're being, they're being tormented. They're going to receive a body that is capable of surviving that forever. Okay. Now mark this, verse, verse 43. Here's the reason why we read it. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Now, I just got through telling you that as Jesus was on the Damascus Road, unshielded, unfiltered before Paul, Paul's eyes were burnt. And I think in, in a very real respect that it's not a stretch to say that as, as you receive your glorified body, there's going to be a glory. 
a magnification of the glory of Christ through you. See, not your own glory, not your own, uh, something that you produced yourself. But this marvelous ability for the Holy Spirit to shine through you in glory. And there will be, there'll be additions to that glory, and we saw that before in Peter. If you endure some hardship and you do it correctly, and you have a hard time physically or whatever, and you bear it right, you're going to be able to magnify the Lord even better than you could without those difficult times. So we rejoice in those times in the hope of a future of glorifying Christ. But I think it's a very real, in a very real sense that your glorified body, and we're talking about the resurrection now, your glorified body, because you're going to be like Christ, is going to have glory. Because, you know, Jesus is very clear. I don't think he says words that don't have any meaning. The righteous will shine forth as the sun. That's pretty bright. In the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember, even Daniel, we looked at Daniel a number of years ago. Here's what, here's what, uh, here's what the Lord said to Daniel. Those who have insight, and that's of those who understand uh, have been given understanding, understand the kingdom, understand the Lord, his salvation, all that kind of stuff. Those who have inside will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Okay, we're talking about the first resurrection here, okay, obviously. And again, just an a, just a illustration of the glory that's part of the resurrected body. So again, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is, you know, the kind of body we're going to have. I think this is exactly what Scripture indicates. When the corrupted, weak, sinful, perishable body that's dishonored and blocked the glory of God constantly is done away with, I think it's safe to say that the new body will have the ability to shine forth God's glory in a way we've never had before and in a brightness that rivals some of these things that we see right here in, in the parables. And so... I would just say, just as a practical application, don't worry about this flesh over much, okay? Don't get too attached to it or too concerned when it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, okay? When your health breaks down and you gotta, you gotta, ha you gotta be propped up with medication or, or something, th therapies of some kind or whatever. Don't get, overly, don't get overly concerned about all of that, okay? Because it's temporary, very temporary in comparison to the body the Lord has prepared for you, a physical body, made for eternity, stamped in the image of the redeemed one that Christ has brought forth, stamped in his image. And this last passage is an illustration, and then we'll close. Philippians 3, 3 through 11 says this. If you want to turn there, just flip there. You don't have to. I can read it to you for time. Paul says this. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You know, don't get overly concerned about the flesh. That's a no-confidence thing, okay? You shouldn't be having confidence in your flesh to withstand uh, sin and temptation apart from the Holy Spirit and the time and the Word in your life anyway. But Paul just says, listen, you're the true circumcision. Your true, your true self is this, and you worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. That's just a standard operating procedure for those who are in, in the faith. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has the mind to put confidence in the flesh. In other words, if you're pretty haughty about what you've accomplished and what you can do, I could, I could say that. I far more, he says. Verse 5, 
circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. I kept the law perfectly, in other words. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the, which is in the law, found blameless. I kept every law, Paul said. Even all the small things, even all the ceremonial things, I kept them exactly. Do you want to have confidence in your flesh? I could have confidence in my flesh. It just got through saying we don't put any confidence in the flesh. He's just saying, in case you're thinking pretty highly about yourself, you can compare yourself to me, Paul says. I could think pretty highly about myself, too. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as garbage or rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. In other words, I've got to give all that stuff up anyway, right? If you're going to find your life, you've got to lose it, right? Going to save your life, you're going to give it away. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So he's just clarifying it's not his keeping the law, it wasn't his understanding of the scriptures, whatever. It's a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, mark this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. The entirety of my life, Paul says, is counted as nothing. Can you say that with Paul? The entirety of your life, can you say that with Paul, okay? Can you say, for I am crucified with Christ, therefore now I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me? Can you say that? And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say with Paul? The entirety of my life I count as nothing in comparison. Are you conformed to his death? See? Christ gave his life to redeem sinners. Are you giving your life up for the kingdom? Because that is one of the traits of those who attain the resurrection of the dead, beloved. Did you know that? And we taught for almost an hour, and 5,472 people went into eternity. And all of us, beloved, are eventually going to come to the end that God told Adam he would come to unless we're changed by the rapture first. And that would be great, but even if we don't get to go like Enoch went, if we don't get to go like Elijah went, it ultimately doesn't really matter because God has something much better in mind for us, and he has established this as a surety, and your relationship to God has guaranteed it for you, and Christ is a progenitor of that race, and you get to forever bear his image. See? So be about those things now. See, Paul knew all of that, and it translated not just into great theology and doctrine. It translated into action. I'm crucified with Christ, and I don't live anymore. I have suffered the loss of all things, and I just count them as nothing. See, it's all right. Paul says, I know how to abound, I know how to abase. In either way, it doesn't matter. Paul had lived, you know, with everything provided for him, and he lived chained to a guard. And he was all right with either one. It didn't matter. The life was temporary, it's used up for Christ, and then you get this new life that's given to you, this physical life, that always bears his image forever. See? He's got that in mind for you. Let's translate that into action today, okay? And for the rest of our lives as we wait for the Lord. Would you bow with me? Father, as I've 
teaching this right now, just realize it'd be really embarrassing for me. Your angels are looking today, and your son certainly gathered together with us. We know that's the case. And they don't see me get excited about the reality of all of this. Wouldn't that be embarrassing, beloved? As the angels look on, Christ here, there are two more gathered my name. There I am in the midst of you also. They don't see us get excited about what God has prepared for us through Christ. They don't see you get excited about the fact that you get this redeemed body that will forever bear the image of Christ. And you're so attached to this one. And you're so attached to the temporary, see? Because there's only two reasons why we didn't get excited about it. One of them would be that we're not born again. And so we don't have Jesus and we've never met him and we don't have any hope of the resurrection that comes with that relationship. So there's no reason to get excited and we just think it's all ridiculous. Or we're just so attached to this life and investing ourselves in things that don't last and in stuff that doesn't last and everything is going to be burned up and it's all passing away, it's all decaying, it's all corrupting. Not eternal things, as Peter said, so everything's going to be consumed in blazing fire. So because we know that's the case, what kind of people should we be? See. And Lord, I just pray that you'll just deliver us from either of those things. Either not having a relationship with your son, which means we have no hope of the resurrection and a forever body with, with Christ in joy with him for eternity. Or we're so in love with this body and all this kind of stuff that we really aren't looking forward to much and not too excited about what's planned for us for the future. See? So deliver us from both of those things by time in your word and the renewing that comes from that, Father. And the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that, Lord, with sincere hearts. For it's so easy to sit here and say, yes, this is what I want to do. Yes, I want to remember that that's how it is. Next time I have some difficulty in my physical life or, or uh, my health or whatever it is, I want to remember that. And we say, yes, I don't want to be caught up with this. Life. I'm so consumed with my own education and my own prestige and, and my power and where, you know, what I can do in the, in the time that I have. And I've forgotten that this temporary life is supposed to be spent counting all that as nothing. Not that we don't need to provide for the needs of our family. Matthew 6 makes it clear. But just that it isn't in first priority, see. It's easy to sit here and say, yes, that's how I want to be. And then very hard when we go out the door. And so, Father, I ask by your Holy Spirit, you'll continue to bring these passages to mind. And guide us by the re our time daily in your word and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit that changes our minds. Right now, maybe we're stamped in the world's image. Change our minds. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.